Uh, this morning we are in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. The first half of chapter 2, um, um, we're, we're going to see Jesus going to a wedding, which is probably maybe a little more familiar part of chapter 2. The second half is not as familiar, but it's still um, quite uh, engaging. And chap- the second half of chapter 2, we're going to see where Jesus is already planning his funeral. So let me pray for just for North American Mission Board, for our time in God's Word this morning as you turn to John chapter 2. Lord, this morning we come um, knowing that your Word is um, amazing. It's it's, it's able to transform um, um, that, that you take your Word and penetrate our hearts. So Lord, we pray this morning that transformation would happen, that that you would, um, that you would work in our hearts. That that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear from you. Lord, may we not um, leave this morning just being in awe of the miracles, but may we be in awe of the one who performs the miracles. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that you're still doing miraculous work in our lives today. So, Lord, I pray you give us ears to hear from you. We thank you for ministries like the North American Mission Board. Uh, we're praying for other churches this morning that are also partnering with, with the uh, Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Pray that, pray that we would be faithful, that we would be generous, um, and that you would use these resources to do great work to further your kingdom. So we thank you for... Um, what the North American Mission Board has done um, for this congregation. Um, uh, Lord, we pray that, uh, uh, that that kindness can be, uh, can continue to be shown to others. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast uh, tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew him, for he himself knew what was in man. So here in chapter 2, we see Jesus attending a wedding and planning a funeral. First, we see a wedding. In verse 1, we see uh, the wedding taking place on the third day at Cana in Galilee. Now, Jewish weddings in the first century took place over several days. They were different than our weddings today. There, there's a good chance also that this bridal party would have been someone related to Mary or Jesus or at least close friends. We, we know this just from context, um, the way Mary felt some personal obligation to help out the groom's family when they realized that they had run out of wine. So she's, there's some obligation there, she feels, and she, she wants to help. Um, we need to understand that weddings are an important theme all throughout the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, weddings and marriage had been symbolic of God's relationship with his people. Uh, you can clearly see this, this kind of symbolism in the book of Hosea. You can go all the way back to Genesis 2. You start to see it being developed. Even in the New Testament, Paul tells us that marriage is this mystery designed by God to show us Christ's love for the church. So we're the bride of Christ. You know, I, I joke that I've been a bride longer than I've been a groom. And so John here, he's trying to tie these concepts together by, by, by where Jesus is performing this first public sign, and it's at, done so at a wedding. So Jesus is at a wedding with his mothers, his disciples. Mary comes to him with this problem. They have no wine. So it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide food and drink for their guests. You know, and this would last several days. This is, again, different from our culture for several reasons. Um, first, the traditional, like for us um, in our culture, it's, it's the bride's family who is financially responsible for the wedding ceremony. Being the father of four daughters, I think the Jewish idea is a great idea. Um, also, I have three sons, so I guess it's, I'm going to be paying for a lot of weddings no matter which way we go. So, um, The second way that this is different is it lasts over several days instead of just several hours. Third way that weddings are different is just how we view hospitality. You know, if I go to a wedding and they run out of food and drink, which may have happened, I don't even, I don't even know if I would even pay attention to that, but... I would just swing through a drive-thru on the way home and not think anything about it. You know, I wouldn't be offended if, if I didn't get a good meal at the wedding. 
Um, in fact, when I'm counseling, and some of you parents who have kids maybe getting to that age of marriage, when I counsel, like pre- when I'm doing premarital counseling, I encourage, you know, if things are tied, I'm like, you don't, ha- you don't, you don't, there's no biblical requirement to where you even have to serve a meal. I remember as a child going to weddings and they would just have those little, I think they're just called wedding mints, those little mints that really nobody ever eats except at a wedding in 1984, and, and peanuts, that was, and some cake, and that was it. Um, and so, but here, there's this idea where, like, running out of wine, it would be insulting to everyone who's there. Um, they weren't being hospitable. This would have been an embarrassing moment for the groom's family. I mean, think about it. It's first century. There's no local Walmart to run to. There's no Grubhub or Drink hub, I don't know what you do for, for beverage. I'm sure there's something out there. But they are out of wine. And so it seems like word is getting out. The party may be about to become lame. And so Mary comes to Jesus with this problem. And I think this is a good picture for all of us. I love how Mary already knew that when there's a problem, she would go to Jesus. That Jesus could handle you know, difficult situations. So she brings the problem to Jesus. And I don't think she, I don't think from context, like she was expecting like the water into wine. Um, I, don't, I don't think she's just assuming like, oh yeah, Jesus can turn the water into wine. I don't, I don't think she's thinking that way. It's, it doesn't seem like, you know, that she's got something in mind from, you know, when Jesus was a boy growing up and Mary's thinking about making, you know, some falafel or some kind of, you know, matzo balls, making his favorite dessert of chocolate babka or something. And she realized, oh, no, I'm out of milk. And she's like, Jesus, you know, I, I want to make your favorite dessert, but we're out of milk tonight. Can you do that, you know, that thing you do? Um, it just seems like she knew whatever it was, whether he's going to just give wisdom or step in, he could fix the problem. Now, his reply to her gets a lot of attention, especially depending on how, like, you read with, like, your voice inflection. You know, like, woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, I don't think this is how this was intended. Um, in fact, when you begin to study this a little more, um, you, you begin to see that this term would be more like what we would use in our language of, like, lady or ma'am, it was, it was a more respectful term. Um, you know, calling a woman and a woman in our culture can come across as offensive um, or disrespectful. As of late, even defining a woman has become disrespectful or offensive. But if a woman came up to me and said, "Hey, Adam, I have this package. Where should I? What should I put it?" I said, "Woman, what does this have to do with me?" <laughs> like you would leave. Like, you, and you would never come back. You would leave thinking that I'm a complete jerk, right? That, that's not what's going on here. So this is, I, I think Jesus, this is more like what we'd say, ma'am. I, I think he's trying to separate her as being mom, mother, um, and being like every other human being. He, he's wanting her to, to see that his ultimate obedience is not to her, but it's to his heavenly father, not his earthly mother. So I think that's what's going on here. 
The phrase, my hour has not yet come, is mentioned several times through John's gospel. It's a reminder that Jesus is complete control of every single detail. You know, they'll urge him, hey, Jesus, Jesus, I need you to do this. My hour has not yet come. And he's talking about um, his death. And so you'll see this in John's gospel. Later, he'll say, my time has come. And he's referring to his death. It is now time for me to do what my father has sent me to do. But at this point, my hour has not yet come to be glorified. He knew, that, he knew why he came to earth. He, he knew his purpose and what he had to do. And his hour to be glorified had not yet come. This passage, it also gives us some insight to traditional Catholic teaching. I don't know if any of you have like background um, in, in Catholic church, but traditional Catholic teaching, Mary is like this mediator between Jesus and man. Um, so this is kind of where it comes from. We see, we see um, Mary getting news, um, some, someone finding out there's no wine. They, they go to Mary, and then Mary brings that request to, to Jesus um, so if you have a problem, take it to Mary, and then she will, you know, get Jesus to resolve the, those problems. I mean, if you think about it, it's Mary. It's his mom. Like, if anyone had an inside track to Jesus, if anyone could have gotten Jesus to do something, you would think it'd be his sweet mama, right? But um, you'll see all throughout John's gospel as well that Many people come up to Jesus. They don't go through Mary. They just come up to Jesus firsthand and say, you know, Jesus, can you help me? And we'll see that in, a, in just a few weeks. Um, and so you don't have to take your request to Mary. You can go straight, straight to Jesus. But I do love that Mary knows where to take her problems. She takes them straight to, to, to Jesus. Um, then she tells the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you, which I... I think it's a really good definition of, of, of a Christian. Think about it. Do whatever he tells you. What is a Christian? What's someone who does whatever Jesus says to do? Um, so I know there's probably more that we should add to that definition, but it's a pretty good summary of what we should be doing as followers of Christ. Do whatever he tells you to do. Uh, then the author of John adds um, some detail for us. He, he, he sets the scene by letting the reader know that there's these Six stone water jars. They're huge. Hold 20 to 30 gallons um, of water. And these jars are here for, it says here, Jewish rites of purification. Uh, in verse 7, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. They fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast Tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it, where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus turns water into wine. This is amazing. Now, thinking this through, some have tried, but I don't think you can make a good case here that Jesus turned water into non-alcoholic wine, okay? Some would argue that this was watered down a bit compared to wine today, which it probably is true, but nevertheless, we have to admit that this contained alcohol, right? Um, you can obviously tell this from even how the master comments. He says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. See, so the, the, the master here, he's baffled. It was probably common practice to serve the good wine first. 
Then you serve the lesser quality wine because after the guests drink so much, they may get a little bit tipsy and not notice that you've slipped in some wine coolers. They just wouldn't know. There are plenty of passages in the Old Testament where wine is this gift from God used in celebration in moderation. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. Um, I'm a teetotaler. Um, Neither Olivia nor I drink. Um, But it's not because we think the Bible condemns alcohol or calls it sin. This is our personal conviction on how we think what's wise for us with our family. So here Jesus, he turns six stone, massive containers of water into the very best wine. Verse 6 tells us that these containers were for the Jewish rites of purification. This is so everyone could, could wash their hands. You remember, it's, this is days of this feast. There's going to be a lot of eating and drinking. Um, and so this was to wash your hands. There are a lot of people be there for days. They would need to keep the Jewish purification laws. So why would John give us this detail? Why does he mention this? He it's possible he could be drawing attention that there's something new happening here, that a new day has come where the rituals connected with the old covenant are now giving way to something greater. The old covenant shadow found in the law is now being replaced by the real thing. Jesus is doing something new. Notice how the water changed. Jesus never touched it. Uh, He didn't mix any other materials into it. There's no hocus-pocus, sleight of hands. He never said abracadabra. The water didn't have to sit overnight. It seemed like it happened pretty instantaneously. This is truly a miracle. He simply asked the servants to fill up the jar with water. And when he told them to take some to the master of the feast, it was already wine. Good quality wine takes a while to make. It just doesn't just happen. Most wines take anywhere from 5 to 21 days to ferment sugar into alcohol. And there are a few rare wines that can take anywhere from 50 days to up to four years to fully ferment. Jesus does it instantly. The water went in the containers with H2O properties. And miraculously came out with whatever properties are in good wine. I'm not sure. This is amazing. I mean, just think about it. Even the molecules and atoms bow down and submit to Jesus as Lord. Notice also that he's not creating something new here. He's taking something that has already existed, water, and making it into something new or better. This high-quality wine. That should have been served first. Remember back in chapter 1 from a few weeks ago how, how John tied the prologue to the Genesis account. You remember this? That I, I, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the beginning um, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So here's this, there's still this connection. I think John is still carrying out this Genesis creation theme here in chapter 2. Notice how several times in chapter 1, John would say, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. You remember that last week? That was kind of the little sections we made. In the beginning of chapter 2, we read, on the third day. Why does John mention all these days? 
I think John's connecting the first week of creation of Genesis 1 and 2 with this new creation in John 1 and 2. You know, in the beginning, God created, spoke from, you know, out of nothing. Here, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 2 is like another creation account. But rather it being out of nothing, ex nihilo, it's, it's, it's coming from something that's already there, something present, something he's making new. Here we see water into wine. Later in John's gospel, we see the bread and fish being multiplied. Jesus takes good things and makes them into something better. I mean, can you picture Nathaniel watching this unfold? You remember Nathaniel from last week? It's one of his disciples. He's the one that was skeptical. Uh, you know, he's the one who doubted. You know, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that guy? Then Jesus, when they encounter, and Jesus tells him like all these things that he's done that no one would know, other than someone who can see um, Nathaniel in secret. And Nathaniel says, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God." You are the king of Israel. You remember what Jesus said to him? He said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He said, you will see greater things than these. And I wonder if Nathaniel's thinking in this moment, like, Jesus was right. This is so much greater. Like, this is amazing. And Jesus, again, I think if we had the dialogue, we don't have it here in John's, uh, in chapter 2, but whenever Jesus is like, you have no idea. You think this is what I'm talking about? You haven't seen anything yet. See, Jesus' power to transform water into wine, make no mistake, it's absolutely incredible. But the power to transform a rebellious sinner into a saint is even more greater This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here's that theme of belief. That's what John's writing, so that we may believe that Christ is the Son of God. So this morning, we encounter the first sign in John's gospel. The other gospels don't call them signs. They would just call them maybe um, a, a mighty work or... Um, um, a demonstration of his power, a miracle. But here, John's real specific. He calls them signs. Um, typically, John's gospel is broken in two halves. A lot of commentaries are even structured in two halves. So the, the first half from chapter 1 through chapter 11. And then the second half, 12 to 21. First half of John has been called the book of signs. The second half has been called the book of suffering. The book of signs, we'll see seven signs. Remember, this is the same guy who wrote Revelation. If you were here with us when we went through Revelation, you saw that number seven a lot, right? He used it all the time. It was to get our attention. He does it here as well. Seven, 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 over and over and over. It's a number of completion. Um, we see here seven signs in these first 11 um, chapters. We see water into wine here this morning. Chapter 4, we see Jesus heals the official son. Um, chapter 5, we see the healing of the man of the pool of Bethsaida. Um, chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Also in chapter 6, we see Jesus walks on water. 
In chapter 9, Jesus heals the man born, um, who was born blind. And then chapter 11, we see the raising of Lazarus. Um, the last verse of this, of this book um, tells us that, that Jesus did way more signs than just these seven. Um, it says, where every, John says, if, if every one of them were, were to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus did many signs, but John is taking us on a journey. He's taking us somewhere. Every word he uses is, is, is calculated. So Jesus leaves a wedding, and he eventually makes his way to the Passover in Jerusalem. So just keep in mind, whenever Jesus is in Jerusalem, there, there's going to be some tension in the story. Um, Jerusalem and Jesus do not get along very well. It's like Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem unless he's required to go there by law or some festival or feast because he just has conflict every time he goes. Somebody wants to kill him when he goes to Jerusalem. But he makes his way to the temple courts. But when he gets there, he doesn't find people preparing their hearts for this sacred celebration of Passover, but rather he finds people taking advantage of those who are desiring to worship the one true living God. The Passover was this huge, sacred time for Israel. Every adult male who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, they were required to attend the Passover. If he's over the age of 19, he had to pay a temple tax. Now, those things are important because of what we see happening here. They had to um, attend the Passover and offer a sacrifice. They had to pay a temple tax. But many Jews lived outside of Judea, that kind of that region of Jerusalem, or even outside of Israel, and they would still make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, they, they just wanted to be a part of the celebration. It was important. Thousands and thousands of people would gather for this um, for this um, celebration. So this is where some people began to t take advantage of those traveling. They saw an opportunity to make some money here. It, it was easy for locals to bring their own sacrifice or pay the tax using their Jewish currency. But it just wasn't fe um, feasible for those traveling from you know, a long journey, from far away, to bring a lamb or a goat or even a dove along on the trip. It was just easier to buy one once they arrived. Now, we all travel like this in some way, right? Um, maybe you intentionally leave something at home because it'd just be easier to buy that thing once you arrive. It's just, it's too big or, or maybe you're afraid it's going to get broken. Um, you know, like maybe, maybe you cannot find your sandals and you're getting ready to leave to go to the beach. You don't have time to go out to Walmart or Amazon Prime something to your house, so you just wait, well, I'll just buy a pair when I get to the beach. So as a good West Virginian, you're going to go to Myrtle Beach, and when you get to Myrtle Beach, you're, you're going to find an Eagles, right? And when you go to Eagles to find a pair of sandals, they're going to be, maybe they're $100, you're like, oh, Kim, I'm not paying 100 bucks for a pair of sandals. Well, in that case, you know, if you're at Myrtle Beach, you would just go to Wings or Pacifics or one of the other thousand stores that are just like Eagles, but let's say every one of those stores all charge $100 for sandals. They're taking advantage of those traveling in. Well, this is what's happening when Jesus arrives at the temple. He sees people being taken advantage of. Not being able to worship God because people were, were 
overcharging for temple sacrifices. Now, stay with me here. The, the problem wasn't that people were selling sacrifices or even charging interest for exchanging currency. The problem was people were making the exchange rates so high or charging extreme prices for the sacrifices that the people couldn't afford to pay. So this is where my illustration breaks down in many ways. Sandals are, you know, they're not a requirement to go enjoy the beach. You can go barefoot or you can just turn into your parents and just wear your tennis shoes out on the beach. But you could not worship in the temple without paying the tax or you could not worship without bringing some kind of offering for sacrifice. Some would come to Jerusalem and they would need to exchange the Roman currency for Jewish currency but this exchange rate was so insanely high. Someone needed to buy a sacrifice, but it would be marked up to where they could not afford to offer the sacrifice. This is what's happening here. It'd be like if we set up a table this morning out in the parking lot and the door you're coming in, and we're charging some crazy amount, or really any amount, and, and then if you couldn't pay it, we'd say, I'm sorry, you can't come in. That, that's what's happening here. And we would turn people away, like, nope, you can't come in here and worship. Like, what do you mean? Like, I, I, don't, I don't have any money. And you're like, sorry, you, you need to pay to come in here to worship God. That, that's, that's maybe closer to what's going on here. People are being turned away from worshiping God because the, others had seen this financial opportunity to make worship into a business. Does that happen in churches? Absolutely. You know, some have used this passage to say churches shouldn't sell things in the building. That, that's not the point of this passage. If a church wants to sell books out of the resource center, or sell cookies for missions, they're, they're not necessarily violating this passage. This passage is about us doing things that are keeping people away from worshiping God. And when we're guilty of this, we see what Jesus does. And how Jesus feels about this. He becomes irate. He's very angry. He's appalled at the mockery taking place in his father's house. Now let me clarify something here. Jesus doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't just go nuts on all these people. He's calculated in his anger. You may be wondering, how in the world can Jesus be angry? I mean, if God is love, how can Jesus, who is God, we saw that in chapter 1, how can Jesus get angry? We need to understand that anger and love aren't enemies. Oftentimes, it's the thing that you love which drives you to anger. Like, that's where the title Mama Bear comes from, right? You mess with Mama Bear's cubs, and you are going to face her wrath. This is also true with human mamas, too. Jesus' love for his father and for people to worship his father is fueling his anger in this scene. He's in complete control. And we can see that by how he responded. When he saw the crowd, he didn't snap. What did he do? He sat down and made a whip of cords. Now, this would have had to take some time, right? He had to find some straps of, of, of leather, maybe some rope. And he just sat there, and he's making, you can kind of picture him, like, kind of braiding this kind of whip together. 
You're just sitting there thinking maybe, you guys just wait until I'm done making this whip. You're literally going to see the wrath of God in just a few seconds. It is possible to get angry and not sin. But this, I'll admit, is the more rare type of anger. Most of us, usually when we're talking about our anger, it's because we don't get our way and then we get angry, right? That's not what's happening here. This, this anger is the anger you feel over some injustice. Anger over abortion, human trafficking, racism. Anger when you see someone being kept from worshiping God. Jesus becomes angry. He drives out the animals, we see here, which is, I'm, I'm guessing, why he's, he made the whip. It was for the animals. Then he, he pours out the coins. I, I would love to see this. Like, he just walks over and, excuse me, just picks them up and just, I don't think there's any explanation. I think he just grabs them and just starts dumping them out. And then he overturns their tables. And what's crazy is notice the response from the crowd. The response is not what I would have expected. And again, we don't have all of John's detail here, but imagine someone coming in this morning. You just tell their man, you can just sit on their face. They just grab your coffee and just dump it out. They just go over the offering plate and knock it off. Flip it, you know, just goes flying. What would you do if it happened this morning? I don't want anybody to try that so we can see. This is not a practice. I'm, I'm guessing the security team, I'm hoping they would already notify the police. Um, we would have all been shocked, like, what in the world's going on? But look at the response that John gives us in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? That's it. Not, not a, oh, man, you're in big trouble. You shouldn't have done that. Or just wait till the Romans come. It's, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus' answer in verse 19 may sound a bit strange. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, so, so what sign do you show us for doing these things? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What, is, is Jesus trying to avoid their question? Is this like a political thing? Like if you watch any politics, they, nobody answers any questions anymore, right? You ask a question, they just dance around the whole time. So what's the connection? Why does John phrase it like this? It could be that Jesus is saying, you want to see a sign? Here's your sign. I'm the temple, not, not this building that you guys worship. Um, I'm the sign. They, they completely missed it. Verse 20, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. <laughs> Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple's body. See, Jesus was referring to his funeral, and sadly, they missed it. He was explaining that his death and resurrection were actually the way you find access to God. It wasn't this temple. You don't find access to God through some physical structure like the temple or even a sanctuary. This is one of the reasons we don't call this room even a sanctuary. We don't want you to think this room is where you meet God. Now, when we all gather in here, we, we are encountering God. But when I come in here on Monday morning, it just doesn't feel the same as it does Sunday morning. 
This is a room, okay? We see later in the New Testament that you are called the dwelling place of God. You are a temple, okay? The way you find access to God is not found in a place, but in a man. The temple was just a shadow of the very thing that was intended to bring us to God himself. The Jews were looking for a sign. It was standing right in front of them, holding a big sign that read, sign. And they completely missed it. But notice his disciples had no problem seeing it. We see in verse 23, where many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They could see them. See, sometimes people just don't want to see it. This is why I, like, I love apologetics. I love reading apologetics. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not convincing anyone to believe in God, right? You just can't. You can't convince someone. I think we should have reasons of why we believe why we believe. But you can't convince them. We can give them all the evidence. This is it's a working of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is at work and he's working. And these Jews just don't see it yet. There are greater things that Nathaniel's going to see. Yes, turning water into wine is miraculous. But turning a rebellious sinner into a righteous saint could only happen through the death and resurrection of Christ. This was the sign that Jesus was alluding to here. So the question I'm going to keep asking throughout this series, this question I posed the first week, is who is Jesus to you? I know who he is to me. Who is he? Who is he to you? Is he Lord? Lunatic? Liar? Or maybe still just a legend? Let me just tell you, no matter what you answer, I already know the answer. The answer is Lord. You can answer it. You may think he's a crazy man. He's a, some lunatic. Or maybe he's, he's a liar. Maybe he's just a legend. So I'll just come kind of myth. But he is Lord of all. And so this morning, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I can't convince you, it's going to be a working of the Holy Spirit, to come to him. Come to him, the one who even atoms and molecules bow down to. Would you come to him this morning? Would you come to him to be renewed? You're like that water. You exist, but Christ wants to make you into something greater. Will you allow him to renew you this morning? Will you confess your sin, trust him as Lord and Savior? I want to be in the back over here. If you just need prayer for anything this morning, I just want to pray with you. So let me pray now, and the band's going to come back up and sing, and I'll be in the back if anybody just needs prayer. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you just like Mary, knowing that you um, can resolve um, all of our greatest problems. Lord, sometimes what we call a problem might not be a problem um, from your perspective. So you don't fix everything. You don't take away all sicknesses, all pains and struggles. But Lord, the thing that you do promise to take away if we just call out and 
ask for help is uh, you take away our sin. You've done that on the cross. You defeated death by raising on the third day. And Lord, if we just cry out for help and call out as sinners in need of forgiveness, you were there to offer that forgiveness. And so Lord, may that happen this morning. There's many other problems that we want to bring to you, Lord. Um, so Lord, may you just hear the cries of your people this morning. Uh, may we bring our problems to you. Not, may we not just run to other people first like we typically do. May we run to you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the miracle that you've performed in us, that you have taken us, rebellious sinners, your enemy. You, you, you've taken us, and you've made us into something greater. So Lord, may we just celebrate that transformation this morning, that we are renewed that we are a new creation. Um, the old is gone, the new has come. Or may we sing and celebrate today.